Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Du Bois Miller, uh, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. And we also have uh, Ed Miller with us, a former guest. Former guest, uh, episode 12 is Ed Miller's episode. Episode 12. And, uh, du Bois is Ed's dad. And Ed and I have been talking about uh, Du Bois coming on for a while now, and we're excited to have you here tonight and looking forward to uh, learning more about your story. Me All too. right. Very cool. So you did not grow up in Ashland or Richmond. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, Virginia. Is Lynchburg, Virginia known for anything? Lots of things. <laughs> uh, and lynching is not one of them. <laughs> glad, glad we got that out Thank of the way. Yeah, there's never been a lynching in Lynchburg. Really? Never. Oh, wow. Where'd they uh, get the name then? John Lynch, he was the founder, and, uh, and his brother, I think, uh, William, was it William or Charles, one of them, uh, they started Lynch's Law during the Revolutionary War. That's where the Lynch's Law came from. Oh. Of course, I think uh, there, there's some other connection to Lynch uh, in England, but Lynch's Law was used during the Revolutionary War to, um, because Lynchburg, at the time, during the Revolutionary War, if, if he captured British uh, soldiers, they would have to transport them all the way to Richmond for trial. Mm. So uh, Lynch said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to try them here. Oh, wow. And whatever punishment we meet out to them, it'll be Lynch's law. And if it just so happened they get hanged, and that's, that's just that. But but most part, they weren't all getting hanged. They were just getting trialed under Lynch's law. I did not know that history. And yeah. is that where the word Lynch came from, like to lynch people? Uh that's one of the origins of it, but there, there have been some other origins. But yeah. as far as uh, Virginia's concerned, that's where it came from. That was in our history books. Uh, I'm a history major. I'm, a, I'm, afraid, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid to admit that I didn't know that. Wow. No, you, you didn't have Virginia history like we had it. That's a fair point. I think we're going to talk about, about that yeah. a little bit. So what was it like growing up in Lynchburg? Uh, I grew up on on the hill called Timbridge Hill. Lynchburg's made up of, they called it Seven Hills, but there were more than Seven Hills. Uh, the Seven Hills they mentioned didn't include the hill I grew up on, which was the oldest black uh, neighborhood in the city and the poorest, and it still is uh, the poorest neighborhood in the city. And when I grew up, there were about, on average, about 50,000 people in the city. And I grew up in a sort of a, a segregated neighborhood some poor whites who hadn't been able to leave the area yet still lived down the street from us. Our street was only one block long, so we didn't have a whole lot uh, of choices. But there were four houses on one side of the street where I lived on and uh, two on the other side of the street. And that was a total street, and it was up a hill on the dead end. So we knew when we got visitors, most of them were in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And, and, so we've had a few, we had some excitement there. But, but we, we, we played with both, uh, you know, black and whites played together up until a certain age. And then uh, uh, whites had to be read their rights of passage saying, well, uh, you can no longer play with blacks when you were about, sometimes it was 10 years old or 12 years old, and they, they, they were no longer uh, able to talk to us e- even mm. because that, that was the way uh, the social structure was set up. But we still enjoyed our, 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 our life in poverty. You know, it, it was, I say we had economic poverty, but we had cultural enrichment because of where we lived and, mm-hmm. the, and the terrain we lived on. 
part of where I lived on now is part of a, a nature trail. Mm. Uh, I lived over sort of over top of a, a train tunnel, and they they took the tracks out of the tunnel now and and asphalted them. But for me, it was just my backyard. Yeah, and we had a, a creek that um, I could almost access through my uh, backyard, but it was a, a, about a 30, 40 foot drop to the cliff, so we couldn't go that way, so we had to go a different way to get to the to Blackwater Creek. But the Blackwater Creek Trail is, it's, it's, it's traveled by many people who come to Lynchburg or who live in Lynchburg. Cool, it's, uh, was it a societal norm for the kids to separate at ages 10, 11, 12? Uh, it was a white societal norm. Yeah. Uh, the kids didn't like it because they didn't know what was going on. You can imagine yourself playing with your friends sure. and then all of a sudden you're called in the house and so you can't play with them anymore. And you had to figure out, well, what's wrong? Why can't I play with this person anymore if we are friends? Because they're a different color. And, and so what sense does that make? No. Until you know somebody had to, to indoctrinate children. They had to be indoctrinated mm. into, into learning about race and uh, with that went uh, a certain level of hatred that had to go with it. Because when you talk about not being able to play with somebody, you have to have a legitimate reason to say why you, why you can't play with that person. Mm. And usually the legitimate reason is, is based upon a false narrative, which still exists today. So what is that false narrative? The false uh, narrative is that uh, whites made this country and whites are superior to blacks and anybody else who, who think they were superior. Um, and that, that's the narrative that was in our history books, even. That when we came over here, um, we, we were, it was to advantage to come over here as slaves as opposed to stay in Africa as free people. And uh, my history book is filled with no saying that you know, uh, plantation life, uh, everybody was happy on the plantation and, mm. and, 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 and the regard that slave and the master had made plantation life happy and prosperous. And I would always agree with that, that it did make plantation life happy and prosperous if you were the master. Right. Mm. But if you were not the master, then uh, not so good. So you were learning all this stuff as, as a kid. At what point, like, could you always tell there's something wrong with this? Oh, uh, our parents, I, I, I don't know when I first knew the difference between white and black, but it was always part of our culture. Because when we were five years old, we were saying things like, if you're white, you're all right. If you're black, get back. Mm. If you're brown, hang around. And sometimes we would say, if you're light, you're all right. Because the light-skinned uh, blacks sometimes had um, a better path to success than, than darker-skinned blacks. Because it was sort of a caste system that people don't like to talk about. Right, right. In some cases, they crossed over back into the to the white world if they were light enough. Mm. And I had a couple of classmates who did that. Mm. So you, you're of an age where schools all the way through high school were segregated. Yeah. So talk about segregated schools back when uh, you were going to high school. Uh, I'm going to mention one thing about segregated schools first. The school I went to was closer to the whites mm. and, and blacks, but for the white people, white children in my neighborhood, they had to go four or five blocks further to get to their school than we had to go. Mm -hmm. um, our school was, was a, a small school, and, and again, our neighborhood was uh, was very impoverished. 
but the school teachers, uh, they taught us what we needed to know. Most of the, I think all of our school teachers had, had college degrees. We didn't have teachers who didn't have college degrees. Um, so we, we got a quality education, even though we didn't have quality material and resources. But when you teach English, when you teach math, you still had to be able to add, no matter what book you, you had, you had, still had to be able to compute. You still have to be able to speak uh, the king's English, as, as, as they might say. Mm-hmm. So you had to learn those, those certain rules of grammar. So even though we had uh, a school that was deficient in some areas, it was, um, it was, it was a pretty good education, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, again, we, we couldn't go to public libraries. They, in fact, they didn't have a public library in Lynchburg. They had a, a memorial library called Jones Memorial Library that I could see from my house on Tinbridge Hill, but it was in another neighborhood. But because of the terrain, we could, we could see the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we could see the, um, the library, and we couldn't go to it because according to the will of, of, of the Jones who owned it, uh, blacks weren't able to go to the, to the library. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the 19... I think I went to the library the first time after I graduated from college just to go in and to see what was in it because they could only have just additional words that I didn't know or additional books that I didn't, didn't read. But it, it, I, just wanted, I was just curious as to what they had that made it so special. Mm. And I was sort of disappointed to see what the answer was not not much. N- yeah. Nothing that would make me want to continue to go. Right. I, I guess for the local history, there were a lot of local history books that were written, but they didn't include. They didn't have anything that referenced me in, in the books. And if, and if it did, it would, it would probably be uh, a negative, considering what I've read uh, of the things that were written during those times. They're, they're, uh, we weren't considered uh, worthy of, of note. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff that was written about us was, was negative. And in school, that was an image that was always, we always had to counter. We, uh, our teachers made sure that um, even if we didn't, we were still children, so we were going to act out. But they said there were certain behaviors that, that, that were expected of us. And even if we didn't abide by them, we knew where they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were certain ways we were supposed to speak to people, and my mother made sure that when I addressed people, that I, I addressed them in certain ways, and, and certain things she didn't want, not want me to say because they, 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 she didn't want me to be stereotypical or us to be stereotypical. And, and we had seen so many stereotypes in the, in the news, uh, in the um, movies, that the images they showed were people like Step and Fetch it or... Um, Mantan Morland, who always rolled his eyes and things, so and and say yes sir, no sir. She said, mm. you, when you speak to white folks, you say yes and no. You don't say, say no, don't say sir or ma'am because that's part of that 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 uh, the legacy of slavery. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. So she said, say yes and no. But I, I say yes, ma'am, and, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir, to people, but. It's, it's from a different level now. Right. But when I was growing up, it was always yes and no. Wow. But, but as far as the education we got, uh, even in our little school, well, it wasn't actually a, it wasn't like one of these White Hall or uh, Rosenwald schools um, that they, they had throughout the counties. It, it was actually a, a school. It was a school. It didn't have a cafeteria or, 
or gym or anything like that, but it had classrooms. And we, with the classrooms, we had teachers, teachers had personalities. And uh, because our school was smaller than some of the other schools in the city, black schools in the city, our teachers were able to, teachers were able to spend more time with us. So we got, uh, we had maybe less than 20 people in our class. I think if we had a class of 20, that, that was considered a big class. Right. So we got more individual attention. Nice. And, and with more individual attention, uh, teachers got to know you and, and they got to uh, uh, make sure you got the education you were supposed to get. Were your teachers black or white or both? I never had a, a black teacher until I got to college. Wow. I mean, a white teacher. I never had a white teacher until I went to college. And the first white teacher I had was a history teacher. Hmm. And so, was that white history teacher teaching the history you learned growing up or oh, no, a different no, history? Oh, no, no, no. Because he had, he had a minor in black history. Hmm. So he, 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 he opened my eyes to a lot of things uh, as far as our history because we weren't taught history, black history in, well, school curriculum. You could take a, a, a class in Negro history which I chose not to, but we learned history through Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, uh, through the, the, listening to our parents talk about things that happened. Um, my mother was affiliated with people who were heavy into white supremacy like Wade Hampton. Uh, Wade Hampton's uh, daughter, if you don't know who Wade Hampton is, he was, he was the, uh, the congressman who uh, helped ensure that Rutherford B. Hayes would be the president when uh, uh, he and Tilden ran, and uh, nobody won. Mm. And what uh, Hayes had promised was that they were going to make sure the, the, the South could kind of restore their their honor. If he got elected, things would go, sort of go back to the way they were. And Wade Hampton would go around and uh, follow uh, Rutherford B. Hayes' route uh, his train route as he was campaigning, and, and he would always um, uh, gin up the people and say, well, Rutherford B. Hayes is coming, and he's, he's going to make sure that we have uh, outright to be stored. We, we're going to, the South will rise again. Mm -hmm. So by doing that, he, he uh, helped increase the, the votes for Rutherford B. Hayes, and that's how he became president. Mm -hmm. So but my mother worked for his, 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 uh, his daughter. So... That th those are the ways I, I learned a, l a lot of the history, um, and so there was some oral history, but a lot of it had to do with reading. And, and our teachers would often, at certain times, give us information about people. Like I learned about Matthew Henson, who was the first to go, go to the North Pole. Through he was the black who, who who went to the North Pole with Perry, but he got there before Perry. Uh, and I learned that from my physics teacher. Mm. I learned about Benjamin Banneker through him, who, who was the first person to make a, a, a clock uh, in, in America, a wooden clock. He, he used a, a Swiss uh, watch and designed a clock that uh, later was burned down, and he also helped design the city of Washington, D.C. Wow. So we, we learned all these things as we were growing up, but these things were sort of missing through the history uh, of fights because they were learning those same things. They were learning more about... Uh, um, um, their side of the history. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, it, it was sort of a false narrative when you didn't include all the people who, who had an impact mm. uh, in making this country. It's almost uh, history written by a, uh, someone with a political view, yeah. uh, not trying to be comprehensive and, and factual. Right. But it wasn't just the history, it was the whole social structure. Uh, 
because you had people who were in the medical profession, in the psychological profession, anthropological professions who had already put us at the bottom. Um, you had people who said, we, we came from apes and we were closer to apes than anybody else, so we, we were just basically advanced monkeys in, in a sense. And, and, and that was an image that people had, and they said we had no civilizations to, to speak of because they had never heard of Songhe, Mali, or, or Ghana. They had never heard of Mansa Musa, who was considered the richest man ever in the world. I mean, I mean he could go across Africa and, and take 80 camels full of uh, gold, 300 pounds of gold on each camel, and just go across the, the, uh, uh, Africa and just spread wealth, so much wealth that the, the city of Cairo actually uh, got overinflated because they had to change their, their, their money and, and mm. their uh, finances because of him. But that's another story. There are a lot of stories that, that, that need to be connected so we can appreciate world history as opposed to you know, just narrowing it down. Right, right. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? 1963. Right, same year my parents graduated high school. Okay. And I have a feeling my parents had a very different experience going through yeah. and, uh, schooling in Virginia. In they, Virginia. Yeah. Well, we had the same, if they were in the seventh grade, when I was in the seventh grade, we had a brand new seventh grade history book. Wow. And I still have a copy of that book. And some of the things I talked about as far as how they portrayed us uh, in, in that history book, they learned one way, but our teachers couldn't teach the same way. They couldn't say that we, we had it easy because they knew better from, from experience. Right. And we could see the results of that when things happened to, to blacks uh, who were still being lynched at the time, and, and, and especially in 1955 when Emmett Till was killed. And kill uh, and lynched, and, no, and nobody was actually uh, um, convicted of the murder mm -hmm. of, of him, yeah. and, and what happened to him, and other things we knew were happening to other people. So, so we knew there there was a uh, an uphill battle that we had we had to fight all the time. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't to say that all white people were bad, but we knew how people who weren't bad could be influenced by those who were, and especially the young right. who, who, mm -hmm. were, who were now told that you got to hate, you got to hate. And, and, and I saw a lot of that hate. But uh, because of where I lived, I knew that that, that didn't hold, hold true to everyone. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the social structure that you speak about, I think it's, very, it's a very powerful force because people, I think people generally don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. And if they grow up in a place where at the age of 10, white kids and black kids just stop hanging out. I think most people, you know, they, they wouldn't want to challenge that and cause controversy and deal with the social anxiety of, of doing that. So they just fall in line. They just say, all right, well, I when I was 10, they told me I had to stop playing with black kids. So I'm going to tell my kids that they have to stop playing with black kids. And mm -hmm. it seems like, uh, yeah, it just seems like that's a difficult thing to change. And it takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it takes a while, and, and the thing is, in my neighborhood, not all whites felt that way, because there were some whites uh, who allowed us to come, at least one family who allowed us to come into their home and play with their children, and, and we would take them out into the woods and we go play, and they were some of the, uh, the best white kids in the neighborhood, I'm not best, best family, because yeah. they just treated us as, as, as people. And then they had to move, so mm. that, that was a disappointment that, just to see them move. But, yeah. um, and there were people, we had to see every day, because to get to school from my house, I had to go past uh, whites 
in the neighborhood. Sometimes some white children, we were allowed to talk to them. They were on one side of the fence, I was on the other side of the fence. And every now and then I might be invited to come closer until a parent might come out. And in other cases, I'd be talking to a white child and the mother would come and snatch him back. Don't be talking to him and, and put him in the house. So they had two different types of attitudes. Mm -hmm. and, and you just accept this because you knew that uh, this is the way it was. Not that that's the way it's going to always be, but this is the way it was at the time. And the stores that we had a store in our neighborhood, you could stand up and, or, and buy things, but you couldn't sit down at the, at the restaurant part. Uh, we live uh, two blocks from, well, actually about a block from the public hospital, Lynchburg General Hospital, and they had a, a, a black wing to that hospital. Uh, and they wouldn't allow black doctors to do anything but go to that black wing uh, until I think Walter Johnson, who trained uh, Arthur Ashe, he was the mm -hmm. first doctor to, to actually to be able to, 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 uh, to do more practices in the hospital than um, the rest of the black doctors. And so we had uh, integration, but we had uh, more segregation. Uh, there were no signs on the bus that said you had to sit in the back, but it was almost like an agreement. You, you would sit in the back, but if, if there were seats were available in the front and you were in the front, you weren't told to go to the back. Mm -hmm. But there were separate drinking water fountains up to a point. They, they, they eventually cut those out, I think, about 19 after the Supreme Court decision, but before then, I remember going to the water fountains to see the colors, and we couldn't go to the white water fountain, the same water, but um, it's just the way it was. Yeah, and, for, go, go ahead. Go ahead, you go ahead. I was going to say, for somebody Daniel's age, he's like, what are you talking about? I didn't mm -hmm. grow up in this country. I'm 27 years old. This seems completely bizarre. Yeah. Um, and it, it's because it is completely bizarre. It but is. It, but it is our history. Yeah, it is. It, 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 it's... Uh, It'll make you scratch your head, except we got so many things going on today, it still make you scratch your head. Because some of the false narratives that are going on, it's just, to me, it's an extension of what has happened, but we have more technology now to, to, to spread it a lot faster and reach more people. Yeah, you would you would have hoped we would have gotten to a place where we're way beyond all of that, but it seems yeah. like we're not. And at times it seems worse because it does proliferate yeah. so easily. Yeah. That's why I thought education was supposed to help solve those problems. Right. But evidently it's made it worse because... Well, I'm not going to say it made, has made it worse, but uh, there's something I, 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 I used to teach my students when I worked in the prison about belief perseverance, which is unreasonable resistance to change. And when we talked about uh, attitudes and change and beliefs, we, we would talk about things people believe for, for things they believe so, so strongly that really didn't make a whole lot of sense. So we, I try to teach them uh, how to think a little more critically and how emotions affect the way we make make decisions right what's that phrase Un unreasonable resistance uh, to change uh yes that's belief perseverance belief perseverance so just wanting to kind of stick to your belief yeah and, and, and that, that that phrase came out of a book that dealt with cults and understanding cults mm. it's called the wrong way home mm. and it dealt with uh, cult-like behavior you don't have to be in a cult to have cult-like behavior because it it, it, it had reach the highest uh, levels of our government. Uh, when you have a, a president who has a certain view and wants to do certain things, like even Kennedy, when he wanted to invade the Bay of Pigs, he had people who wanted to uh, go against him, but he was the president, so they, 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 they backed off. Right. So you graduated college in the 60s, and by, yeah. by the time 68 rolled around, and, and was it Nixon versus... Uh, 
who was it in that election? But anyway, there's uh, another uh, election. Humphrey. Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey. Right. And, Happy warrior. Right. And so that election, 68 was a wild year for, yeah. for a lot of reasons, but mm-hmm. uh, somewhat arguably reminiscent to what happened in 2020. Talk to us about 68 versus 2020 from your perspective. 68 was the most significant year that I, I, I can recall uh, other than this year starting because uh, Martin Luther King was supposed to be, speak at our graduation in May. Oh, wow. And he was assassinated in April. Mm. Uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated in 1968. And I graduated in 1968, and I got drafted in 1968. Mm. September 10th, his birthday, my mm. son's birthday. Not, he, not that not, year. He, not, not, that not, year. Not, not the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it was a very uh, significant year for me because of, of all, all the turmoil that was going on in, in the 60s, and the riots were going on, and um, uh, and all the, the, the su- suppression. Uh, Martin Luther King was had been looked at as the most dangerous man in America by uh, the FBI. They, they were they were and they were I, tracking everything he yeah, was doing. Yeah. So, for just something that didn't make any sense, if you got a man of peace being the most dangerous person, yeah, what could have caused it? But uh, Hoover had his vendettas against a lot of people. Plus, he had a whole lot of information on people. So um, that's another story within itself that yeah. people write about. Yeah. So uh, riots in 68 versus riots in 2020, were, were they basically uh, the same? Uh, well, I say riots. You call them protests or riots. <laughs> well. What were the differences, if any? Well, back in 68, things just reached a boiling point. Uh, the riots in 68 were just an offshoot of riots that happened throughout time as far as this country. If you go back to look at some of the riots that took place, if you go back to 1863, you had the anti-draft riots when over 1,600 people were killed in New York. That's a riot you don't hear about. You don't hear about the, the, the red summer in 1919 when Chicago, Springfield, and other places where, where, where blacks were lynched. Or you don't hear about the riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they just destroyed the area of, of Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. You don't hear about the, the riots that happened in uh, uh, Rosewood, or Tuba City, and uh, Yuba City in, in Florida. So riots have been, been there, the riots in 1943 uh, in Detroit. So we've had riots throughout our history. Right. But, but for 1968, it was a culmination of things that happened. Uh, and especially when you have two major uh, figures being assassinated, uh, mm-hmm. one who was the potential presidential candidate and the other who was a man of peace and Nobel Peace Prize winner getting shot. Yeah. So, of course, it, um, so it, it was a significant year because um, the riots... Uh, Again, for 1968, because blacks had gone through so much stuff, uh, the riots that took place during the 68 uh, convention with, with Mayor Daley, it, it, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, I think they were having a movie now about uh, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, who were, who, who were killed. And that was something that I, I heard about. The, um, in, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, four students were killed. Um, uh, trying to integrate a, bo- a bowling alley, Kent State, uh, all those things were happening. So it, it was just so much uh, going on, and the Vietnam War, right. which was another thing um, where I got drafted to go to. 
we'll come back to that. Okay. R- race relations today compared mm-hmm. to when you were in your 20s. Well, I wouldn't be here talking to you now uh, if things hadn't changed because we would be in, in separate worlds. Uh, so ra- race relations have changed, but they still have a, a, a long way to go because you have such a, a large segment of the population that's gullible to misinformation. Yeah, super gullible. Yeah. Frighteningly gullible. Yeah. So I try to understand why that is and from a psychological standpoint and understanding the, 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 the neural pathways that our brain takes and, and how it develops thoughts and, and how we uh, respond to emotional stimuli. And when I understand that, I get a better understanding of how people who get highly emotional don't let uh, the thinking part of their brain uh, come into gear. Where you and, find rational yeah, and logical thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So they just go from, okay, emotional stimulus, hit the amygdala, which, which is the seat of uh, uh, emotions, and then goes straight to response. And usually you're, gonna, you're not going to make the correct response. In most cases, you might make a, a, a decision based on misinformation that your brain is giving you, especially if it deals with fear, because fear is one of the uh, uh, biggest, with them, the strongest emotion that we have. Right. And, and also, it's, it's the emotion that makes us have, make bad choices. So the good news about your son, Ed, and, and I, and I think Daniel, and I'm guessing you too, Du Bois, is we take deep breaths before we react. And yeah. that, that usually allows us to do yeah. some critical thinking before there's a, yeah. a, a response. Mm. Cool. Uh, so you, you work, well, look, what did you do in the Army? Were you in the Army? I was in the Army. I was, I was drafted. So I, I, I had, when I, when I got my papers saying that, you know, you are now available for the draft, uh, I had three choices. I could resist and go to jail. I could flee to Canada, but I didn't have any money. Or I could get drafted and, mm. and go in the military. So I, I went in the military uh, kind of kicking and screaming, but only to myself. And I got drafted and, and eventually wound up in the military police as a dog handler. Okay. And dog handling was the only thing I, I actually uh, volunteered for in the military. And the only reason I volunteered to be a dog handler because I heard only two dog handlers had been killed in Vietnam since the start of the Vietnam War, and they had been killed because they didn't follow orders. And I said, well, that sounds like my kind of odds, and I want to get in, you know, in and out of this military as fast as possible yeah. because I wasn't military material. So I spent uh, a year in o- uh, two months in Okinawa with, for dog training and then a, a year in Vietnam, and then I got out. I got out in 19 months and five days, mm. which I thought was five days too long. <laughs> or 19 months and five yeah, days well, too long. Yeah. The, I could get an early out. If I stayed uh, two extra months in Vietnam, I could get out five months early. So I was trying to narrow it down to five months exactly. But I had a layover in Fort Dix when I was discharged, and I had to stay five extra days. Right. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You're in Vietnam for all that time, and then they send you to New Jersey? I mean, yeah, to, to process out. No, I get it. Yeah, well, my, yeah. Wife, my wife's from Jersey, sorry. Oh, I was just okay. Really yeah. Uh, so what, what kind of missions did you have when you were in Vietnam? Oh, just basically guard duty. Okay. Um, we didn't go out in the field or anything, but mm-hmm. we, we, we could see uh, fighting going on uh, at night. We could see tracer bullets at some of our units, but most, most of the time we were just guarding perimeters to make sure that nobody was infiltrating right. areas. And we had, since our dogs could smell about 500 times better than we could, they, you know, they could alert us if something's out in the, in, 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 the, in the perimeter. 
But we had three strands of concertina wire, razor wire, plus landmines, you know, bordering us. So we, we, we were pretty safe, right. except sometimes they would shoot rockets in at us. You could shoot a rocket so you could tell where they were going by the sound. Right. So that, that wasn't a big, big worry. What kind of dogs? Uh, German Shepherds and anything they could get that looked like a German Shepherd. <laughs> what, what is it about German Shepherds? Uh, they were supposed to be uh, uh, easily trained, uh, and they, they, they're basically loyal. And and some of them, depending on how you train them, you could have your, you could sit your dog by your side, and you, somebody could come up and smack your dog, and, and the dog wouldn't do anything mm. unless you tell it to attack. Wow, discipline. Yeah, and other dogs they would like to fight. They they fight each other. We we get on the truck and and you put one dog on. My, I had a dog named Dingo. Uh, I didn't know there was a dog in Australian an Australian dog until some Australians who were stationed in Vietnam told me, mm. and. Uh, he would fight all the time, but uh, other than that, he was he was a good dog. Yeah. Was there uh, when you were in in the army or in Vietnam? Like, did black soldiers and white soldiers hang out with each other, or was it separated? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we had to hang out sometimes, and sometimes um, it was not just blacks, but it was brown, and we had Native Americans or indigenous people too. The indigenous people usually kept to themselves and kept quiet. Uh, the the Latinx or, or Hispanics they would sometimes identify with us because of, of our color, and and sometimes we joke around about being a, a, a soul brother, mm. uh, and we had whites who uh, you could be friend and others who would pretend to be your friend until they got drunk, mm. and then you hear them say the nasty words, right. and others you could tell how they they. Uh, we're going to treat you about how they retreat, how they treated the Vietnamese. When we first went to Vietnam, they said, "Well, when you get there, when you get up country, you don't call uh, uh, the Vietnamese gooks or other names." I said, Gook? "I never heard the word, but I heard a lot of whites calling uh, the, the the native the, the Vietnamese gooks." And I said, "Well, if they're calling uh, them gooks, I know what they'll call me when mm. they don't hear me. And sometimes, I mean, when they when, when I'm not around." Right. And sometimes you could accidentally hear them say things, they'll they're, they're clean it up. So you, you had different kind of relationships with, with people. Uh, for the most part, I just took everybody in stride. I said, I can't change who I am uh, based upon who they are. I, I can't be mad because they are mad. I, I can't be evil. or But I had to be aware. I had to be aware of how people were in order to, to get along with them. So... So the units were actually integrated technically, yeah. but people yeah. uh, had various comfort levels. And, and one thing that blacks would do uh, when we were out, uh, we were usually out on a bus, or, I mean not a bus, a truck, that's called a, 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 a deuce and a, not deuce and a, a, deuce and a half. Deuce and a half. Yeah, I I, I've been on a deuce and a half yeah. too. Yeah. So when we were on a, on a deuce and a half truck, you know, we see another deuce and a half truck that had blacks, you know, give the black power. <laughs> so that, would, that, that that's how we identify with others. Yeah. And uh, that's awesome. And, and so we had some sayings, you know, uh, uh, black power. Uh, say I'm, I'm black and I'm proud. And, and some white friends of mine, they say, yeah, you say, you say I'm black and I'm proud. I say I'm white and I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it takes all kinds of people to make the world. Right. And right. Uh, it's too often it's, it's you know, some people are rotten, you know. Yeah. So you 
graduate college and then you're drafted months later. Yeah, actually, I, I had a four-year college plan that, that, that stretched into five years because after my fourth year, I was told I was going to be drafted out of college. And I had two courses to make up. Uh, one was speech because I didn't give speeches because I was too shy to give speeches. So I said, I just have to fail it until I build up enough nerve to take it. That was my freshman year. And then another was a physics class. So I, I, I was going to take those the first semester. Um, and and I actually I was going to lay out the, uh, the first semester and take the second semester courses. And the draft, uh, the secretary at the, at the uh, then the recruiting office at the uh, registrar said that you can't do that. You have to be a full-time student or else you're going to get drafted. So I, I had to take a, a whole semester of courses I didn't need in order not to get drafted. And then after that, I got drafted. Drafted anyway. Got drafted anyway, but I knew I was going to get drafted. So it, it, there was no choice. There, there was no choice for me to do anything except try to make the best of it. So if you were a college kid, you weren't going to get drafted while you were in college? While you were in college. If, if your dad was connected, you weren't going to get drafted? We didn't have any of those. <laughs> Not at Hampton. I went to all black school. Well, it wasn't all black, but I would say 98% black. So you went to, uh, it was known as Hampton Institute. Institute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, of course, it's Hampton University. Yeah. yeah. Before then, it was Hampton Agricultural and Normal School. Really? Yeah. Normal School? Yeah. What, is that, what does that mean? Uh, it, it, it was the name they just gave. I forgot the, 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 the name of it, but there were a lot of normal schools. Uh, uh, you would talk basic trades. Uh, oh, gotcha. Uh, ah. like, like Virginia State was a normal school, too. Okay. And, and there were a few normal schools. I don't know if Virginia Union was, but I think they were always considered a university, even though they didn't have university status when they first named it. They just named themselves university, then later picked up the university status. Mm. Uh, uh, Hampton was supposed to be sort of an elite school. It was supposed to be the richest uh, uh, black school in the, in, the, in the nation. Really? Yeah, called the Booker T. Washington. Okay. And uh, Armstrong, has, uh, Armstrong uh, Chapman Armstrong, that Armstrong School is named mm -hmm. after, uh, he was the founder of Hampton Institute. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was a year after Howard University was founded by O.O. Howard, who was an Indian fighter, a Native American fighter. Came this way to, uh, I guess, to atone for the sins of fighting Native Americans that owned this land. Oh wow! But they didn't actually own the land; it was their land, right? Because there was no ownership. Right, right. It was just theirs. Yeah, it know. was just theirs. Yeah. So after college, and well, I'm sorry, after Vietnam, mm -hmm. what, what did you do for a living, or how'd you make money? I didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after I, I graduated from college, I. I um, I tried to get a job. Uh, I went to the employment agency and showed them my credentials. I told them I was a college graduate, had a degree in biology, and I was a Vietnam veteran. And they said, well, we can give you, you can get a job uh, making $100 a week as a uh, security officer. That, that's all they said I was qualified to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I substituted, uh, taught a lot, and then I went into um, medical technology for a while, but I decided uh, I didn't want to do that. My, my advisor, Hampton, told me I didn't want to do that, but I said, 
it was a way for me to get a little bit of money because the government would pay for it, and, and they had a program where I, I could get a little bit of money. So I would use that money and, and go up on Fifth Street, that was the block, as we call it, and drink beer with my friends and then go back to school the next day. And But I decided that wasn't something I wanted to do, even though I, I liked some of the courses I took. Uh, and I, then I went into the teacher corps. And then I came back, uh, substituted a lot, still can find a, a decent job. So I, I got a job in Richmond, where actually at Powhatan as a, a penal institution teacher, as they call them then, a correctional educator now. Correctional educator is the term yeah. now. Yeah. But when I, when I applied for the job, it was a penal institution teacher at the State Farm. State Farm? That's insurance, isn't it? Nope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the farm. It's the largest farm. It was the largest prison in Virginia, 3,600 acres. Wow. And then they, they separated into two parts. Uh, the north side was James River Correctional Center. That was 1,200 acres. And the other uh, um, 2,400 acres, did I say 3,600? Yeah. Uh, were at Powhatan Correctional Center, which was the worst prison in the state at the time. Worst uh, for what right. reasons? Well, you had people who had the longest sentences, mm -hmm. people who messed up at the penitentiary, were transferred to Powhatan, uh, people who waited on death row, death row inmates were sent to Powhatan. So all the hard cases? Well, not all the hard cases, but a lot of them. A lot of them. Uh, I had inmates in my class who had sentences for 80 years for robbery, uh, my first GED student had five life sentences. Uh, I guess he's still in now, but um, and he was locked up in maximum security. I taught in maximum security too, so that that was where uh, one of the most challenging places to teach that I've ever taught, and I think anybody would ever teach, because of the dynamics between inmates, staff, and the teachers, and the, and uh, counselors. Uh, in some cases, if an inmate didn't like it, he, he'd throw urine on you, mm. to, on some of the people. I, I never had a problem with them, but uh, I never had a problem teaching in prison except with the administration. Yeah. Yeah, because most, I, I knew a lot of inmates from my hometown and, and neighborhood. Mm. So you could connect with them? Yeah, we, we connected and talked, and I even hired one when I was principal. I hired one to be uh, my, uh, the janitor for the school. Yeah, and was this something that they could choose to take, like take take these classes while they were in prison, or, or was it kind of a mandatory thing? Uh, 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 classes weren't mandatory, but it looked good on your record if you took classes. And, uh, and, it might help you get out. Yeah, early. and 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 they weren't just SOP courses. Uh, we we had besides the GED classes, uh, we had uh, different trades, and, and they expanded over the years. We started with auto mechanics, heavy equipment, operating, offset press. Uh, um, we had book cooking and baking, welding, um, and a few other trades. They, they came on after that. Uh, what, what, what did you teach primarily? I, when I first started, they said I was going to teach math. When I got there, they had what was called a lab, individualized prescribed instruction lab called the IPI Center. And there I taught uh, anything from non-readers to GED uh, preparation. I had students in my class who couldn't read I Am a Man twice in a row. Hmm. They could see it and read it 
one day, the next day, they saw it. It's like they hadn't seen it before. Wow. And then I had students who were uh, ready to take the GED. So I taught that. And then some inmates said, well, you're black. You should be able to teach black history. So why don't you teach a black history class? So I taught a black history class. <laughs> uh, fortunately, when I was in the military, uh, I didn't just become a, a, a dog handler. I also worked as a clerk. One of the, the, the black sergeants, he wanted some more visibility in, in the, in the uh, clerical staff So as far as uh, black people. So he hired me to be, well, he almost drafted me to work in, in as a as a clerk, where I, I typed up awards and decorations. So um, I, I got first dibs on books that came in from the USO and, and other places. So anytime mm -hmm. a book came across uh, uh, the office that had black on it, I'd read it. So I get it. And and most of these the people in my units weren't big heavy readers because a lot of them were still just coming out of high school. Right. And since I was a college graduate, and there were some college graduates in my, in my class, I was able to get a lot of books and, uh, that I read and, and made me want to learn more. And so I, I said, I have to learn this like I, I know my ABCs. So I kept learning more and more. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. So I, I did uh, have a good, a strong foundation, strong enough to teach in prison. And some of the inmates, they, they were pretty active too. And, and they... Um, they told me about books to read or suggested, do you know about uh, J.A. Rogers or his books? Do you know about this person or this person? So uh, I would read the books they, they, they suggested and, and we would write to certain black book publishers and get free books that I would read and then I, I got the, the school to purchase other books. So I had a class for black history and then I had a biology class too where I taught students, basically the human body, because I said they don't need to know about classification of trees. They're not going to uh, classify trees. But I figured if they could learn more about the human body, they would appreciate something. Uh, it might help them. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how long did you work in the prisons? Total? Yeah. Uh, I retired after 32 years, and then I went back and worked in the youth schools for five years teaching a class that dealt with the, the human brain. Mm. They used to call me the brain man. Because <laughs> I, I, I would walk around with the brain, a model of a brain that I could take apart and we would talk about the different parts of the brain. Okay, nice. So, so you mentioned you had started uh, a lot of the reading then. Is that when you started the collection of books around that time period? Yeah. You started working the, I, I say that because at home, we could go to the library. Like there, there's just rooms with walls of books and books, books downstairs, a book room upstairs, books in the attic. Huh. All red, and I'm like, when did this start? I'm guessing this is about when. The yeah, started. yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. One, yeah, one of the first books I read on, on Black history was called uh, Chronicles of Black Protest, and that's when I ran about read about people like uh, David Walker, who who won his uh, freedom through a lottery, but he wrote this pamphlet called Walker's Appeal, and the pamphlet was considered so inflammatory that they put a price tag on his head. And they would smuggle the book out in, 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 in people's pants. They would, they would uh, put uh, this pamphlet in, in the lining of a pants. And, 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 and uh, he was in, I think he was in Boston. And I think he, ran, he was run out of uh, the South and, and went up to Boston. I think they said he died mysteriously, either from poisoning or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, I read about him, Denmark VZ, who started an insurrection. And, and I knew about Gabriel Prosser and, and Ned Turner. 
mm. because I learned that in elementary school. Right. Uh, but uh, I do have a lot of books. What about what about <laughs> your uh, your namesake? Uh, W. B. Du Bois, William Edward Burkhardt Du Bois. Uh, I, I felt I was obligated to learn about him, but I I knew about him because he was still living when I was growing up. Oh. And he, he died on the eve of the March on Washington. Oh, wow. Because when he died, they said the old man had died. He was 93 years old, mm. and he was born in 1868. So I had to learn, I, I learned about him, not just about him, but the people he, he, he was uh, involved with when they started the NAACP. I, I found out about people like uh, T. Timothy Fortune, who wrote the New York Age. He was a newspaper editor, uh, Monroe Trotter, uh, who they said committed suicide after he went to see President Wilson and, and he and President Wilson got into an argument because President Wilson had segregated the, the uh, civil service at the time. It hadn't mm -hmm. been uh, segregated until he came along and when he, when he looked at the, uh, the birth of a nation, then it, it kept, helped give rise to the Klan again. He kept, the rebirth of the Klan came because of D.W. Griffith's uh, book, uh, movie, The Birth of a Nation, that was based on the book The Klansman. And he th that was his favorite movie. Mm. So th that gave license to the, the, the Klan to rise again. Mm. So uh, all this stuff is sort of, sort, of, sort of connected, as you see. But right. as far as my namesake, I, I, I said, well, I had to read what he's read as much as I could and, and read about him as much as I could. Yeah. So in fact, I used to do workshops on him because he had read so much and had done so much in his life because he lived to be 93. And he was the first black to get a PhD from Harvard. Uh, uh, in, in his book, uh, The Suppression of the Slave Trade, is still number one in the Harvard Historical Series. Uh, then in 1903, the same uh, year that uh, Megan Walker founded her bank, uh, he wrote Souls of Black Folks, which is the same year that um, um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar died, and I, I went to Dunbar High School. Mm. So I have these six degrees of separation, but they're probably about 360 degrees, and I don't separate <laughs> anything. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, yeah, so I, I got I got to know uh, a lot about him and and the people, and he wasn't always a pleasant person to know because he he because he had this air about him. He mm -hmm. wore his little Van Dyke beard and his top hat, uh -huh. and when he marched and and he had his cane, so he was a little more sophisticated than people like Booker T. Washington, uh, who was his nemesis. Even though they worked worked together for a while, but uh, Booker T. Washington kind of sold him up the creek one time, according to one source that. He was supposed to get this plum job in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. as a school superintendent. And he gave it to uh, Terrell, I think, or Robert Terrell, whose wife, Mary Church Terrell, was, was big in the civil rights movement. And Mary Church Terrell was so light that she could pass for white, so she could go in social settings and find out what was going on. Mm. Sort of like Walter White with the NAACP in Georgia. So, no, it's just a lot of stuff I could tell you. <laughs> wow. But, uh, so regarding namesake, yeah. um, Yes, he would be considered mine as well. Yes, yours. Okay. The name you don't have is my first name, which is Maynor. My first name is Maynor. I was named after Dorothy Maynor, who was a concert singer who was trained at Hampton Institute under a man named Robert Nathaniel Dett. And they have an auditorium named in Hampton for him. But she was one of the 10 top paid uh, uh, concert singers in, in the United States back in 1943, I believe. Okay. 43 or 41, I can't remember which Wow, year. so you're, Ed is in uh, William Edward, Edward mm -hmm. Burkhardt? Yeah. yeah, Burkhardt. They used to call him Burger when he was growing up. And when he talked, he talked with a, 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 whistle, a, a whistle, like some of the rich people. Would, 
It was <laughs> and so he he had, he had this. I, I've got a recording that he had made uh, that dealt with his autobiography, and he, and I listened to him. I said, "Oh, I can see why." Mm. He knew it. And plus, if he didn't like you, you know, if he didn't think you were uh, uh, up to his standard, he might not talk to you. Mm. Mm. Wow. Mm. So, so back to your time in the prisons. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I'm asking this question very sincerely, even though you, the question probably is asked a lot and people don't really think about the answer too much. Does rehabilitation in the prison system generally work? Excuse me. I'll tell you what inmates used to tell me. They would say, uh, you can't rehabilitate me. I can only rehabilitate myself. Mm. But we provide the resources for them so on that road to rehabilitation, they could have the tools to work with. Because uh, I would see men on the street, I used to see them on the street sometimes who had been out and were still out. I would ask them, uh, well, well, how are you able to stay out? Uh, what three things do, do well, keep you out? They said, one thing would be their family, uh, their education and, and the ability to put their mind to it. Mm. So but the education uh, does help because we just didn't pass our GEDs. We had people who graduated from college. Uh, after I taught uh, and worked downtown in the central office, I went back to Powhatan as the principal. So we, we resurrected the college program. We had 150 men in college through J. Sergeant Reynolds oh, wow. at both James River and Powhatan. And plus, we had an apprenticeship program with over 100 men in, in the apprenticeship program in baking, welding, bricklaying, offset press. Uh, uh, we had people working at a slaughterhouse. We had a slaughterhouse there. They called it meat processing, but it was a slaughterhouse. The cows go in and steaks come out. Uh, we, we've had a guest come on, a uh, guy I served in the Army with, Sergeant Major Holcomb, who worked mm-hmm. at Powhatan, okay. and he talked about that slaughterhouse. I remember so. Holcomb. I remember uh, an officer named Holcomb. No way. Carl, yeah. Carl Holcomb. I, I don't remember. His, I remember Holcomb because Carl is in his mid sixties now. Maybe I bet you know each other because it was H O L C O M B with an E yeah. at the end. Yeah, right. No, no E. No. Yeah, I, I remember that was a, a Holcomb, but I, I can't remember all the details. H O L C O M B. Yeah, because there was a place outside of Lynchburg called Holcomb Rock, but it's Holcomb. It, it's spelled H O L. C-O-L-C-O-M-B. Right. But it's called Hawkham. Uh, that's near where my, my parents live. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet, yeah, y'all worked at the same time, mm-hmm. I almost guarantee it. Yeah, because I was principal for five years at, at Powhatan. And then after that, they sent me downtown uh, as a way to punish the, uh, somebody. Uh, was that you or somebody else? No, no, somebody punished? else who, who, who had worked downtown. Oh, okay. So he got, he got a demotion, and I just got a lateral transfer to work downtown. So, and, and that, that allowed me to work in other prisons. So I would go to other prisons and do other activities and work with them on computers or uh, do black history programs uh, whenever called for or do other various and sundry duties at the prison. I mean, at the central office. Right, right. So uh, do you have any fantastic stories from your time in the prisons? Like something the somebody not in the prison world would uh, think is made up or... Just too fantastic to believe. There are a lot of them. <laughs> uh, from my own experience, the one that kind of stands out, I guess, is, is, is uh, the secretary I had. Uh, we had an inmate who was transferred to Powhatan from uh, 
Mecklenburg correction center. And Mecklenburg was still a hotbed of controversy. You know, they were, they were, Mecklenburg was home of the largest escape uh, of death row inmates in history. There were six inmates who escaped from the death, uh, death row. The Blally brothers the, were two the Blally, of them. The Briley the brothers. Is it Briley or Blally? Briley. 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 Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, librarian I hired used to live in the same neighborhood, I think, uh, down the street from the Briley's. Mm. Uh, but the, and one of, one of the Briley's who didn't get the death penalty came to Powhatan. He was the youngest one. But um, where was I going with this story? My mind went You talk about your secretary. Oh, my secretary. Oh, yeah, yeah y'all want to hear the juicy stuff, don't you? <laughs> uh, well, she, 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 came, she came. She was a, a, a modestly attracted, uh, attractive lady. And uh, I had hired uh, this, this inmate from, from uh, Mecklenburg based on a, upon the recommendation of the, of the principal in Mecklenburg. He said, well, this guy, he, he works well, he works well, but he had a few problems with women uh, in, in, in the prison, so they, they had to transfer him. But, but he, he's a good aide, and I needed an aide because I had lost my secretary. She had, uh, had an accident and, and, and a broken an ankle, and she decided to retire. So I was secretary and uh, a principal. I wasn't just principal of one institution. I was principal of three institutions, mm. Powhatan, James River, and Deep Meadow. Actually, and we had a North Housing Unit, a medical unit, and uh, M building. All of the separate, separate areas I had to facilitate, plus I had to go to uh, downtown and work with the college people. So I was always on the go. I was always on the go. But uh, he, 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 I mean, she came in. He was already working at, at, as a, an aide. So she, she became my secretary, and she was married. She had a family, but you know, he kind of smoothed on up to her uh, at, our, at our first graduation. This was the first time she had, you know, been involved and stuff. So I told, told her, you know, why he was in, in prison. So by messing with women. She said, no problem, because she was happy to marriage. You know, she had a stable family. She wasn't going to jeopardize anything. So I, I always went about my business, but I kept hearing stories about something going on. And uh, so I called to my office and asked her, was anything going on between her and him? She said, nope, she's happy to marriage, no problem. So, okay, if you say so, I trust you. Then one day she called me when I was downtown, and she told me I needed to come out to the... Uh, to the, to the facility, so I went out to the facility to Powhatan, and she said uh, uh, she thinks that he was trying to kill her. The, the, the inmate was trying to kill her. I said, "Why is that?" Because she was pregnant, and uh, he found out she was pregnant. He, he he suspected she was pregnant, and uh, I said, "Well, okay." She said, uh, "I said, okay. Well, we have to go and see the uh, the warden and let him know what's going on." And when he found out, well, he had heard rumors about it too, because he had asked me about it. And I told him, well, I have to take her word for it. He just gave me the you know, Askins look and said, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then when it came uh, uh, evident that she had been having an affair, then she had to be let go. Yeah. And her husband had to come and get her. Ooh. Yeah, so he drove up in this big... Uh, uh, four by four came out and uh, he, he, he had a business and, and, and the, uh, I, the details I found out was while the mouse was away, while the cat was away, the mouse would browse around the house. Mm. And uh, 
he would work to 10 o'clock and uh, the inmate would call her at home and guess, guess, guess telling her sweet nothings and she just got, oh. And the next thing you know, uh, they had a special place they would go in our computer room. We, we had computers and that was down the end of the hall and the room was always locked, but she had a key, she could get in. And she, she needed some computer literacy and sometimes he would help her out because he knew about computer literacy. And I guess that's not the only thing he knew about because she did get pregnant. Uh, and after she got pregnant, you know, we had to, the officer had to escort her down to the school. She had to get all of her belongings. And while that was happening, the inmate saw what was going on. And he wanted to know what was happening. And I told him none of his business. And then after we got out, I called him back down to the, to the office. And he was in, he had life without parole. So he was never getting out because he had killed a, a deputy serve. And he told me, he said, I thought I could get the death penalty, but they, they changed to life without parole. So he was never getting out. And she was, the lady was married, and she had a child. She had a 14-year-old. Mm. So I couldn't see the attraction, you know, to, to jeopardize your life, mm. your, your, your reputation, and, and, and your livelihood just to have, uh, to do the nasty with a, uh, an inmate, right. but she wasn't by herself. That same day, I saw a library aide who was a woman, a young lady, and she was leaning. Uh, she was uh, leaning against the wall, and the inmate had his uh, hand. He's leaning on her, and, and I thought I got to make a mental note of this. <sighs> so uh, after I dealt with that, I came back, and I told her, "You believe it, man? No, you, you don't need to be talking to that man." She said, well, he was just talking to me. I said, yeah, and I bet I, I know what he told you. He said, he's in on a rape charge and he didn't do it. Mm. And she said, <laughs> she just looked at me with eyes wide open and said, like, how did you know that? Because I had been to his hearing and I had heard him say the same thing, but I had seen his file too. And sometimes the inmates, if you look at their jackets, they call them the files, some of them would be a foot deep. Mm. And some of them would have uh, three files. They, they had so much information in them that uh, they had they had to carry it in a, in a, in a different container. Mm. But uh, that was one of the stories. Uh, wow, dang. Uh, <laughs> I myself got kicked, uh, suspended from prison uh, because I had given uh, something they said was illegal to an inmate, which really wasn't illegal. It's just a matter of interpretation. Uh, um, back in M building where I worked, that was uh, what, some people call a political prisoner. People on the left, I knew some people in an organization called Youth Against War and Fascism. And they said, well, so-and-so, he's a, he's a political prisoner. And, and we were trying to work with his case. Well, an inmate aide of mine asked me one time to give him some cookies that he got out of the commissary. I said, you know, I can't be doing stuff like that. He said, oh, yeah, you can do that because the council do it all the time. I said, let me check. And I checked, and sure enough, yep, I could, I could give him cookies. So I, he had, had a, a pack of... Uh, Little Debbie's, the oatmeal cookies, and I, I took them to the M building with the guard, and I said, uh, is it okay for me to give uh, inmate these cookies? Yeah, it's okay. So I, I gave him the cookies. No problem. So the same inmate gave me a carton of cigarettes he bought from the commissary, uh -oh. unopened. And so I did the same thing. Instead, I didn't ask the guard this time, I just gave them to him. He said, well, why did you give him those cigarettes? I said, well, I, I gave him the cookies the last time. I don't see anything wrong with giving him the, the, uh, uh, the cigarettes. He said, well, you shouldn't have given them to him. I said, okay, I get them back. I said, okay. So I went on about my business. The next thing I know, officers 
hauling me over to the administration building and and saying nasty things to me. So I had to shoot back at him, and we had a little conversation. But you were just trying to give him the cigarettes he already gave you. I was trying to give, yeah. The day they were not open. It, it was just a matter that I didn't ask the the guard. Oh come uh, on! That, that was it. Yeah, that's and, so and, and and the the, the, the superintendent said, uh, "Well, you just let them use you. You just let them use you." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "You're just a flunky." I said, "No." I said, "He gave me the cigarettes, and and, and I said he gave me the cookies, and and I, I I took the cookies back to the inmate, and I didn't see anything wrong with taking the, the cigarettes back. And when they said I couldn't do it, I got them back." So what was wrong with that? You're just being used, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I kind of got upset and told him that uh, if anybody's being used, uh, I said, I, should, I shouldn't be held accountable for that when you are ha- have somebody locked up in M building without uh, any trial. He doesn't even know why he's back there. Because mm-hmm. I asked him, I said, why are you back I don't know. They just put me back here. I said, and he's back there, and he hadn't had any kind of due process, and, and you put him back there. Blah, blah, blah. Well, they st- you you still being used, so you got to get out of my prison. Mm, so dang. they suspended me from the prison, and I went down to our central office and I got reinstated. And later, and when and when I went back to the prison, the inmates gave me a standing. I mean, they, they applauded and cheered in the classroom. I said, oh, I didn't I didn't know that was going to happen. But later on, the same uh, uh, warden who kicked me out was drunk, and I saw him, it just, I guess it was irony or, or karma or whatever, he was riding down Chamberlain Avenue, and he wrote on, on the median, because <laughs> and, and, it was an accident in, in front of us, and he wrote on the median and tried to get around it, and, and the police said, oh, wait, wait, what are you doing here? And they stopped him, and he got all drunk, mm. and then he lost his job. Karma, I think that's mm. karma. Wow. Did you know your dad was suspended from his job? I did not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, things come out sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of alcohol, uh, you, we were talking about music a little bit. Musicians, like, mm-hmm. what well, you, you were a musician when you were young. Mm-hmm. Did you continue to play? Or what What has music's role been in your life? Well, uh, for me, music. I wasn't a musician. I couldn't play that well. But since we were, it was uh, just a local band. And just a neighborhood band, it was a chance for us to get out of the neighborhood because we didn't have a car. Mm. So we, we, we couldn't, there was nobody in my family driving. I, I never saw my father drive. My mother started driving after I got out of college. So actually, after I got out of the military, that's the first time I saw her drive. And so music was a, a, a social, social event for me because in my neighborhood, there was a, a dance hall. There were actually two dance halls within walking distance, about four blocks from where we lived. And one was called The Sportsman. And I wouldn't go to The Sportsman because I didn't have any money to go up there to, to start with. But once our band played there, uh, the owner would allow us to, to, to go to any dance free unless it was a, a big ticket item like James Brown or somebody coming or Otis Redding or somebody coming. But any other local band or a band, with a regional band that would come, we could get in free, so I, I would use that time to to to, uh, to for my social activities. Uh, the band itself, we would travel to different places. We came to Ashland one time and played at Randolph Maker. Oh, nice. nice! Yeah, I think we knocked up a fire hydrant one time backing up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
our band would play at UBA and, and just a local venue, a lot of chilling circuit stuff where uh, people wouldn't normally uh, go. We'd go to some hole in the wall, some uh, old, old uh, storefront uh, in, in the country. They had a pot belly stove in, in, in the floor and they, they would sell candy and, and, and hot dogs, whatever, behind the counter. And, mm. and we, we'd play. And the people outside be dancing. They wouldn't come inside and, and pay money. They'd just be outside having a good time. And we we go home maybe make a, a thirty five cents or forty cents, uh, if we if we were lucky we, we would get a good year. But the so whole band would make thirty five or forty a piece, cents? a piece, a yeah. piece. Yeah. What's that equate to these days? You think? Uh, oh, that that wasn't money, because <laughs> <laughs> you know we could we could make up to thirty forty dollars a, a, a night sometimes. We played at a good place. There were some places like Lynchburg, called one place called the Parkway Inn. We could make about twenty dollars. Uh, we were catering then to. Uh, uh, a white dance establishment. Blacks couldn't dance where we could play. But then they, they got wired to, well, we're not paying the blacks anymore. We're just going to get the white people to play. So we stopped playing at those places and then they shut down. But uh, What kind of dances was it? Uh, just rock and roll dance. We, we played uh, uh, just pl- playing you know, rhythm and blues and, 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 and just some uh, rock music. We played both black and white music. We, we played some of... Uh, 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 who was Jane American, um, uh, Dion, and, and some other, uh, some, some Beatles, we played some Beatles, but we also played Otis Red and James Brown, nice. uh, um, Etta James, and, and... When you said Dion, you mean Dion Warwick? N- no, uh, Dion, uh, there's a guy named Dion. Oh, got uh, it, yeah, Dion yeah. and the Belmonts. Yep, yep, Dion yep, yep. and the Belmonts. So, we would, we would play, uh, uh, but basically, with rhythm and blues and some blues. Nice. But uh, my role was kind of minuscule because I, I didn't play that well. Well, you played the trumpet, right? I played the trumpet and picked up the, the bass guitar for a little bit and, mm. and played a little bit before I went off to college because uh, our uh, other bass player, he quit. Mm. Uh, Did you I, play it all after college, after Vietnam? Uh, I played... I didn't play bass because when I went back on our band, we had a bass player, and he was very good. And so I went back to trumpet, and uh, I taught myself a little bit on how to play the saxophone and flute. So I, I played, we played songs by Isaac Hayes. I played flute on uh, uh, the theme from Shaft. I learned how to play that by ear and some other songs mm. on, on by ear. But it wasn't anything to write home about. Mm. But we did play one time behind Jerry Butler. I mean, we were not behind him. We were the a warm-up band for Jerry Butler in Richmond uh, at the Ebony Island Club, which is on North Avenue. But it was called the Sahara Club then. Mm. So it, it got us around into places we wouldn't go. To. We went down to Wake Forest. Uh, oh, wow. And, and played on that campus as well. Down. So uh, what is it? I mean, when you were a kid, there were a lot of places that you couldn't go, I'm guessing, because of segregation that you can go to now, like that library you talked about. Like, yeah. are, there, are there any others like that? And, and what has it been like to see the world change where you're able to go and, you know, there aren't separate water fountains and you can go where you couldn't well, go before? Uh, it, 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 it makes me feel that there's progress, but it's a progress that shouldn't have had to... to, to uh, we should have been beyond this point a long time ago. Right. You know, uh, if we, uh, 
if the people who were in leadership position had just abided by the Constitution, right. we wouldn't be in the situation we were in. All they had to do was just obey the Constitution. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's all we were asking for. Just, you know, if you say we're supposed to be free and have inalienable rights, and you say we have the right to vote, uh, or a right to a, a, a decent job and decent education, uh, why not have that? I mean, yeah. everybody benefits. Yeah. Uh, and the society benefits. Yeah, too. yeah. everybody yeah. benefits when that happens. But if you stunt one group, then to do that, you have to do something to the other group because you have to put forth a lie and, and a lie that people can justify not hiring you, a lie in which people can justify treating you like dirt or dehumanizing you just yeah. because, well, look at you. You're mm -hmm. the wrong color, so you, you, this is the treatment you get. When you were a kid, did you uh, ever think of that there could be a black president? And by, by the way, when, whenever a white guy says black president, we're obviously talking about Barack Obama. Yeah. I think a lot of white people said, oh, it's all, it's, we're good now. It's race no, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying you're yeah. applying that. Just, just, yeah. I just wonder if that, yeah, if that was like, if, if that was like a complete pot, remote possibility uh, that you thought, I don't know. Robert Kennedy thought so. Mm. Uh, but I thought we had a long way to go just, just, just to get parity, yeah, just, right. just, just in basic race relations. You know, just, just being treated as a human being, that's what we wanted first. And then I think everything else could uh, come about. I, I thought that there were people who had potential to be uh, in, in leadership positions. When I think how far Frederick Douglass had to come to get to where he was for somebody who had to trick somebody to teach him how to read. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he could do that on his own, I, I would try to use that to inspire my students. You know, how Frederick Douglass had done it and you have an opportunity to do, do the same thing. Well, um, uh, but going back to your question, because... Yeah, yeah, no, the, but, just, just or, or like, you know, could when... The, could the 20-year-old version of you ever imagine there'd be a black person oh, no, in, in uh, this country? I, 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 I hadn't thought about uh, along those lines. Yeah. However, in the 1960s, there was a book called The Man by Urban Wallace, mm. and, and, and it dealt with uh, how a black man who was... Uh, President Pro Tem became uh, the, 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 the president of the United States. So he was the first black president in the United States. Mm. But it had a lot of stereotypes in it, so the mm. book didn't... Uh, I mean, it, it was an interesting concept to have a, a, a black man as president. So that, that, that kind of stuck with me. But um, I, I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't yeah. see it. Mm. Wow. So you've read hundreds if not maybe a couple thousand books it sounds like uh given the extensive number of books in your in your house and and mm, how much you've referenced reading books tonight but you've also written books so talk, uh, talk talk about transition from lover of books by reading to uh the notion of actually writing a book. I, I never had planned to write a book uh, but when i used to tell people stories about working in the prison they said you ought to write a book yeah nope because hmm. I had had never written much in my life. Because the reason I majored in biology was so I didn't have to write a lot. Um, I think three pages with my max in college. And, and you, said, then, you sound like your son. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I I, I started uh, keeping track of things in prison. I, I had to keep a journal because so many things were happening every day. You never knew what was going to happen every day you went to prison because every day was a different day. You couldn't plan your day mm. because somebody else had a plan. Mm. I could plan to go in early 
And it, it wouldn't make any difference. I still stopped working at the same time because they wouldn't let me down in the basement where the school was because there was no officer on duty. So I said, that's a waste. Uh, so you, you just, just, just never knew. But the experiences I had, the stories I, I told, uh, um, I decided to, to, I just started writing. And I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing. I had about 500 pages of stuff I had written. Wow. And, and then I said, this doesn't make any sense for me to write this much stuff because some of it can't be worth, write, worth, worth putting in a book. And I, I got in touch with a, 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 an editor through a, a connection I had. And so she put it down to about 300 pages and took all the excess stuff out. Because I had never written a book. I didn't know the first thing about it. And I wound up with about a 300 page, maybe 300 pages in the book. But I didn't get it edited the way I wanted it. And, and so it's, it's not my, I made all the classic, classic mistakes a writer would make. And the book shows it. But um, I had one teacher I knew, and one of the civil rights leaders in Lynchburg said he kept that book by his bedside all the time and read it. Oh, wow. And people, they, they, they found it quite amusing and, and eye-opening because some of the stories I've told you, I, I went into detail about. Mm. Uh, and these from, were just stories from your life, from your childhood? No, these were stories from prison. Just from prison, okay. Just from prison. This, this book is called Sale Tales, The Recollections of a Correctional Educator. And it's, a, it's about um, my start in prison, and my first 25 years working, basically. Mm. Because I, I held so many hats in prison when, when I worked. Uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but it's just, uh, just a matter of fact that I started off as a teacher, and, and I told you all the job, all the courses I taught as a teacher. Then I worked, worked downtown as what we call a transition agent. So I went out in the field and, and worked with uh, uh, inmates who were about to, to, to leave. So I kept track of a thousand inmates and we didn't have computers at the time. Mm. So I kept them on notebook cards, I mean, uh, note cards. And uh, I worked as a uh, academic, uh, assistant academic director, GED coordinator, library coordinator, transition coordinator. Uh, I also wrote grants through the Eisenhower grant, mm. a staff development coordinator. So I did a whole lot of different things Anything they called for me to do, I would do, but I like the job because I, I can kind of do it on my own. Uh, so I was told that nobody supervised me. I, I supervised myself, even though I had a supervisor. They, they just said, well, you know what you're doing, just go ahead and do it. Right. Yeah, well, and if there's any, if there's a place to pat yourself on the back, you know, this is it right here. So uh, feel free. Center, center you're the center of the universe. That's oh, right. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well... And so you wrote that book, but you've also written others. Uh, I wrote two other books uh, on, on, on my life growing up in Lynchburg. Uh, I, I called it 10 on 10. The first book was called 10 on 10. And the reason that, let me do this, I'm going to get a look. Yeah, you're oh, good. Oh, yeah, you're go good. for it. Go for Tell it. us a joke, Daniel. <laughs> okay. I got deer in the headlights. Okay. <laughs> the boys, hurry up. Okay, here I am. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, when I was living in, in where I am now, uh, there were some people in my in my neighborhood of, of Tinbridge Hill who wanted to do an oral history of uh, Lynchburg. I mean, uh, of Tinbridge Hill, and there were some some of the the, the people I knew from, from my, when I was born because 
I was born on Tenbridge Hill, uh, and the neighbors who were there when I was born were still living there. Oh wow! And they wanted to, to write a, a a book about the neighborhood. No, no, they didn't want to write it, but they wanted to do oral history. And and first up, they they wanted to just do uh, five pages. It, it was just going to be a history of, of each person going to write five pages. But that became challenging for some people who who didn't have a whole lot of education and couldn't write five pages. So they decided to do an oral history. And so we got together with a, a professor, a retired professor from uh, Randolph-Macon Women's College at the time. Now it's Randolph College, but Randolph-Macon's Women's College. Uh, and she she was an English professor, and, and she helped us edit the book. And we got with the historian who's well-known in the, in the Richmond area, Lauren Ed Lee. Mm who was also a member of a group I'm with uh, called Virginia Africana Associates. And, and that's another story. But we got together and we, we uh, uh, Dr. Lee told us how to do interview, how to interview ourselves. And through the interview, we came up with this uh, oral history that, that, the, that Dr. Bell, who was our editor, put together. And she transcribed our, our notes. We, we, we spoke to a, a, a mic and, and we, we taped each other, and, and we came with this book called Remembering Tenbridge Hill. And we, and as we were doing this, because I had started on my five pages, and I couldn't stop at five pages, <laughs> so I just kept writing. So after we did Remembering Tenbridge Hill, then uh, uh, I was writing my book, and I had finished, I, I finished that book in about three months, which was a different time frame than it took me to finish the uh, sale tales. It took me 10 years to write sale tales. It took me three months to write uh, 10 on 10. And 10 on 10, the reference to 10 on 10 is 10 years on uh, McKinley Street. I lived on McKinley Street for 10 years. And McKinley Street, as my brother would say, we're, we're, that's where that was some of the best years of our lives. Even though we were definitely in poverty, uh, we had just moved from a house where when we first moved in, my mother had to clean up the blood because there had just been a murder. Mm. And that was part of the agreement for her to move into the house. The arrangement was, if I clean up this blood from this, this shooting where this, this woman had shot her husband, can we move in the house? And that was an upgrade for the house we were in because I don't know what the house we were in, what kind of facilities we had, but the house we moved in had running water. Mm but we didn't have electricity. And I knew we were poor because the people across the street had electricity. Mm. And I was always comparing. Mm. I said, well, we don't have electricity. They got electricity, so we must be poor. So we moved out of that house onto McKinley Street where we had electricity, but no running water. Mm. I mean, we had a, a, a spigot outside and, and a toilet on the back porch that froze in the wintertime, but uh, that was it. Everything else was... Uh, just four rooms. How many siblings do you have? Uh, there were four of us. But they were staggered in such a way. My brother, my oldest brother, he, my late brother, he, he was eight years older than I was. My other brother was six years older. My sister was three years older. And I was the youngest. Uh, they would say, you're the baby. I said, I'm not the baby. I'm the youngest. <laughs> so uh, we, we lived there. Uh, and I think we paid about $20 rent. Uh, something like that, a month. Mm. And my mother said, 
we could get, uh, well, the, the landlord said, you can get uh, running water, but you got to pay more rent for it. So she said, well, and my mother was living with us, but my father was living in D.C. because he worked in D.C. for reasons that were unknown to us, but we were told they were, he had to do that to get a job. But I think it was something a little more nefarious than that. He wasn't a bad man, but I think something happened early in his life that caused him to, to leave uh, Virginia and go to D.C. to work. But he was basically just a day laborer, so he didn't have uh, a, a lot of education. I think he, he went to the sixth grade, I think. My mother went to the 11th grade. But she, she, wanted, she always wanted to finish school, but she had said she got sick. But, uh, hmm. So 10 on 10 represents the 10 years on Tenbridge Hill because McKinley Street, even though it was, uh, 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 the street was only one block long, we had so much activity on that street because across the street from where we lived was an open field. And that field sometimes uh, we played football, softball, uh, we uh, had, uh, our, our neighbor used that field to plow and plant uh, corn, and sometimes he would bring in a, a mule team. He would hire somebody with a mule team and a plow, and they would come in and plow up the ground, and they would plant uh, corn, and after the corn was harvested, we, we, we'd burn the, the, the stalks uh, and have little 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 roast and throw, throw potatoes in the, in the, in the, in the corn stalks and, and take them out after they got hot, ash potatoes as we called them. Mm. And so we had a whole lot of activities and people would come up on the street from other, other neighbors, from uh, other streets in the neighborhood because we had a lot of large families. One of my best friends had seven sisters. Oof. And uh, he had also uh, a nephew who lived with him. And, and one of my classmates had a family of eight eight children. The people across the street had five. Uh, and the next door neighbors, they had so many people coming in and out of that family. <clears throat> it was hard to keep up mm. because there were um, two two two. Mm. There were two two boys who who lived there sometimes because their aunt lived there, so they would live with their aunt sometimes. But then they would go back to their father. They they stayed there a while, and sometimes they would take us. His father would take us to Lovingston to visit his other half-brother. So we, we got to know people that way. And my neighbor across the street, uh, who was my classmate and also our class president, and one of the top students in our class, uh, she had cousins who, she had three cousins who would come over, three or four of them, from another part of town, so we got to know them too. And, and there were another, another family on, uh, on another street uh, had seven people, and then across the street from them, they had eight in that family. So we, there were large families, and we would all gather sometimes doing things. We would go down by the creek and pick blackberries uh, as, as a family out, and we just get out uh, a gallon buckets and go down by the creek and pick blackberries. Mm. Or sometimes we just go down by the creek uh, and uh, do other things. The creek was polluted, mm. uh, so in, in the state polluted, it still might be polluted because it was basically a, a cesspool. I mean, it just, it was just a, they, they would dump raw sewage into the pool because there was another little creek uh, that fed into it from the dump. There was a dump we could see in another neighborhood from where we, from our vantage point, and we would uh, climb up the dump to get to our swimming pool because there was a swimming pool, and the, the water from the swimming pool went into this creek they call Shitty Creek. Mm. And also the sewage from the dump 
went into the treatment part and went into Shitty Creek that fed into Blackwater Creek mm. where we would uh, sometimes go. And when I had, I had a friend who swam in uh, Blackwater Creek oh. who got typhoid fever. I bet it. And everybody in the neighborhood had to get typhoid shots. Whew. Yeah. Shitty Creek. Shitty yeah. Creek. There it is. And, and, and actually, there were two Shitty Creeks in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that, that's why we. That's how we. You know, even though there, again there was poverty, but there was uh, environmental enrichment. And from from my study of activities, when when you have an enriched environment, it, it stimulates the brain the brain to grow more. The, mm. the neurons in the brains will grow if you have an enriched environment because they do studies with. Uh, animals, rats, they say, well, this animal in, in this area when it's almost like its own environment, here's one with the other little toys and stuff, and here's one with nothing. We're going to see how their neurons develop. And the ones that went in natural settings basically had uh, more brain activity, more structures in the, mm. in the neurons. It's, yeah, it seems like a lot more was happening probably on uh, McKinley Street than like in a suburb, you know, for example. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And we had people in my neighborhood who's, who didn't go on McKinley Street because it was nothing there for, as far as they were concerned. Uh-huh. It was nothing there except the people who, who, who were, whose streets got, were kind of contiguous to uh, McKinley Street. Those, those were the people that we, we hung around with. Mm. And there was another set uh, in what I call the main part of, of Tenbridge Hill uh, where I, I was born. That was another subset of people. And they seldom came to, to my, one of my best friends never came to my house, hmm. which was fine with me. Because <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, it's an, it was an embarrassment. I, I remember one time uh, when I was, I think I was in the 12th, no, I was in the 8th grade. And my neighbor across the street invited one of her friends to, to visit. And when she saw me in my yard, she said, Du Bois lives there. I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my next door neighbor didn't know that we didn't have running water. Wow. We were the only people on the block who didn't have running water. Mm. Mm. Uh, wow. Tell us about your uh, your family. You have a son, obviously. Yeah. I have you, a have, son. you have other kids? I have, a, I have a daughter who has two children. That COVID has helped. Uh, well, COVID has made us uh, daycare providers now. Oh. <laughs> nice. Because the, the daycare that, that they were going to, well, we'd be going to shut down. And, and since my daughter and her husband have to work, they had to have somebody to take care of the children. So my wife sort of volunteered herself and me to, to be the daycare provider. So, so we do that about four or five days a week. How long have you and your wife been married? How old are you now? Uh, <laughs> since 1981. Years. Okay. Yeah, 39 years. Going on 40. Going on 40. Wow. 40 this, this, this year. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, tell right, so why, why don't we uh, end this uh, episode with how did you meet your wife? Music. Uh, one of my best friends, I, I, he became one of my best friends when I came back from Vietnam, and uh, he was he was married to my wife's sister, and I used to go out and, and visit sometimes. Sometimes we go out and play and and, and do other things, and uh, my wife would my future wife would come by, and she was a lot younger than I was, so um, I didn't pay it in the mind. I thought she was a nice young girl, but I said she's too young for me. But when she became 18, um, uh, 
Well, she she asked me one time to to go out. I, I took her out somewhere, and I almost killed her uh, on the way back uh, because the cop. Yeah, I I was just starting a work, and I had bought this uh, Mercury Montclair from a friend of mine who didn't have all the body parts, and they were from uh, she was from Ashton. They had sideswiped the, the car. The, the passenger uh, driver's passenger side door wouldn't open. Uh, the, the front hood was held together with, with the wire. Uh, the, the interior was, was just a mess, and, and I, if I had a, a flat on the front, I wouldn't be able to change it because I didn't have the kind of jack, it didn't have a bumper, but that was the first car I had. So uh, that's the car I drove her, uh, almost killed her in, because <laughs> we were going around this curve called Cheatham's Curve and taking her home. This we had the capital curve because we were in the mountains. And I know I'm driving. I'm driving, and next thing I know, I'm coming up to this mountain, and, and it looks like the trees are coming toward me. So I, I had to stop and slide. If I slid a little too much, I'd have gone over the side of the hill. Mm. So uh, that's how we first met. And, and that was then, your first date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, uh, she came to Richmond to work, and I was still trying to get employed and doing other stuff. I went into the teacher corps, peace corps, for a while, for a year, and then I came to Richmond, and she was in Richmond. Uh, and then we, we we hooked up again. Very I'm cool. not gonna tell you all the gory details, but <laughs> Ed probably eventually <laughs> we got together. And I told her I was gonna marry her. She said, "Oh yeah, mm -hmm. okay." So how, how long had you known her when you told her you were gonna marry her? Oh, I had known her, but you know we had only we had seen each other a couple of times, but that was it. I was still uh, old and stupid at the time, and I'm just stupid now. But uh, <laughs> Um, she just didn't take me seriously, mm. Mm. but I, I had already made up my mind, and then I guess I beat her down. <laughs> well, it worked out, I guess. Yeah, very yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, Du Bois, thank you so much for coming, Ed. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, yeah. Ed is now here for the third time. Ed is uh, That's right. out in front most times on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks to you both for being here. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for well, having us. This is the first for me. This is my inaugural. Very cool. Well, your grandkids will listen to this someday. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is going to be out there forever. The boys. Uh, okay. I had, my, I had to let my brother hear it. We, we talk all the time. Yeah, he'd love he's to he's hear in it. Florida. He'd love to hear yeah. it. Sure. Yeah. Very cool. cool. All right. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.